0: So my name is Doreen Shanaz and my leadership lesson is inclusion is the key to being a successful leader and you have to be inclusive in your workplace, you have to be inclusive in terms of bringing in every stakeholder and you have to be inclusive in terms of giving them a value. Hello and welcome to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast.
1: I'm Kate McGee, the editor of Management Today.
2: And I'm Ailish Cronin, staff writer at Management Today. In this episode, we meet Doreen Shanaz, founder and CEO of Impact Investment Exchange, and the first Bangladeshi woman to work on Wall Street back in 1989. As a leader in the impact investing space, she talks about the importance of inclusion to combat the white male-dominated sector, and also gives us an insight into her new book, The Defiant Optimist.
1: Great, so let's move on to the stories on our agenda this week. It's time to respect the people manager. At least that's what Dr. David Carnegie, head of L&D at a European private bank, argued in a piece for us this week. Middle management is a much derided position. Even Douglas Adams in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy wrote that periodically you need to get rid of a third of your population, middle managers. These middle managers were sent by spaceship to crash land on a different planet with the useful workers, leaders and scientists remaining behind. Some people argue that companies don't need people managers. The theory is that because the work gets done well enough by individual contributors, the quality of managers makes no difference. Also, there's a view that their best way to develop people is on the job. So promote those with a people orientation and just let them get on with it. If you end up as a people manager, he writes, and often derided and lampooned role, some believe it is because you have displayed leadership skills over technical ability. Like flat-earth beliefs, they are mistaken. Indeed, several studies from companies like McKinsey, Burson and Harvard have shown that good management makes a positive difference to the commercial performance of a company, such as a five-fold increase in profits, an increase in earnings per share or higher EBITDA. Good management also reduces turnover, lowers sickness absence levels, but critically can improve overall engagement and belonging. Yet we don't appear to respect what a good manager can do for us. We have a tendency to under the group and over-reward the individual. He writes, Give any individual the fictitious choice between being managed by an excellent footballer who has shown great leadership qualities and someone like Lionel Messi, and the follower will choose Messi every time. The followers assume that some of his expertise or greatness will rub off and make them better even though Anders Eriksson, who is a research psychologist and expertise, would argue that Messi would struggle to explain how to transfer his talents. We also don't train managers. In 2012, Jack Zenger published research in Harper Business Review that people leaders are typically in a role for nine years before they are given training as a people leader. In other professions, he writes, this would be total madness. Good afternoon. I'm your pilot for today's trip to New York. This is my maiden flight. I'll be properly trained, coached and supported in 10 years time. But for now, sit back, relax, and let's see what this baby can do. So I'm interested in what our listeners think. Is management given an unfairly hard time? What do you think, Ailish?
2: I often equate it to this idea of having a good teacher can make or break a student's academic performance. And I think, as you said, it's often the individual is praised for the work that they do, but then The middle managers or the line managers or those people that are immediately kind of one senior level up from them are often ignored or overlooked and their input isn't necessarily taken into account.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I think a lot of what a good manager does is behind the scenes and is not so obvious and it's very hard to prove impact, I think.
2: It's also quite a lot of work, especially when you said that they're often trained on the job. That's quite a lot of work to put on someone's shoulders. You know, you imagine somebody who happens to display good people leading skills. They've already got a job to do. And now they're being promoted to this slightly more senior role that they've never done before. And they're having to learn that on the job. Because it's all very well and good having good people leadership skills. Then having the skills to actually become a people manager. There's a lot of pressure there, I imagine to bring it to a personal story my father's been in this situation before where throughout his career you know he's displayed very good people managing skills he's always been part of a union and he's displayed those leadership skills and he was then asked to become a line manager it's not something that he ever really thought much about doing but it when he it wasn't until he got into the role that he realized that it wasn't suitable for him even though he's got those skills but it's quite a different beast going that one step up. And he actually had to step down from that role because it just wasn't something that he was comfortable doing. It wasn't something he felt he could do properly. I
1: think that's a really interesting story, Alish. And I think that it's a good example. Your dad is a good example of a lot of people that have been put in that position. I think they talk about there's millions of accidental managers in the UK who have been promoted and you know often the only way to get more money or to kind of move up the hierarchy is to be pushed into these management positions but it doesn't suit everybody and I think there's two bits there first it's a shame that you can't be a brilliant technician and just stay being a brilliant technician and have a career path that's you know helping you to do that and feeling like you're recognized and rewarded for being good at the actual technical skills of a job and then when you actually get into a management position if management skills are not taken seriously and not respected enough then you have a lot of people in those positions who either can't or don't really want to do that sort of management bit of it and they're not getting the support in order to learn how to do it. There's certainly a feeling that in the UK our managers are not as professional as say they might be in other countries like the States Mm. who seem to take this a lot more seriously. In our last podcast where I interviewed Jennifer Moss, she was suggesting that maybe we should have separate even management and leadership tracks because being a good line manager is also a different skill to being a good leader, often.
0: Mm.
2: I think it all comes back to the fact that we don't, I think, necessarily value soft skills as much as we should. Especially being a line manager, you're, you're often working a lot more closely with the people that you are leading and are managing, often even literally sitting next to them, perhaps, depending on how your workforce is set up. If you've got a, quite a small team, you might find yourself sitting directly next to them. So... It's placing value on those interpersonal, softer skills that I think can help people in that situation, but we tend not to do that so much
1: and definitely, and when you call them soft skills, it's almost sort of suggests that it's they're sort of easy somehow mm. or not as important, but yet, as these studies are showing, these soft skills are having a huge impact on the financial performance of a company, mm. so they are. A hugely under-recognized skill they are actually a quite a critical skill mm. um, and particularly for leaders as we talk more about the empathetic leader and coming mm. through COVID etc people skills are critical to both managers and leaders so we should definitely take them more seriously and moving on to our next story which also has people skills at the heart of it Ayla you've been following up this sort of sexual harassment scandals in business Um, starting obviously with the cbi
2: so in light of the cbi scandal which we've talked about before on this podcast it sort of prompted us to ask the question are we seeing a sort of me too movement but for business so i've got some interesting statistics here so according to a world risk poll from global safety charity lloyd's register foundation two in five people have experienced workplace violence and harassment in their lifetime And more than three in five people have experienced psychological harassment three or more times in their lifetime, with similar figures for physical and sexual violence and harassment as well. So, if we put this into the context of business and everything that we're seeing now, there isn't necessarily an uptick in the number of instances that that we're seeing i think what's changed is how employers react to complaints particularly from a legal standpoint new legislation has come out that makes employers directly liable for harassment by a third party unless they can prove that they took all reasonable steps to prevent that harassment from taking place so this is the worker protection act and it essentially holds employers liable for this harassment if they cannot prove that they've done every single thing that they could to prevent that from happening in the first place, rather than simply taking steps to resolve the situation after it's happened. There's also been changes to the way employers react to harassment complaints. So Georgina Calvert-Lee, who's a barrister in employment law and equality expert at Bellevue Law She told us that prior to 2017, when the Me Too movement began in earnest, it was not uncommon to have to explain why sexist banter was not simply just a joke, but would actually amount to harassment. And why, say, taking clients to a strip club as part of a work event might make female employees feel uncomfortable and disrespected. Of course, nowadays, most sort of larger employers seem... To understand this but there are still issues around the tolerance of certain instances and I think it comes down to this idea of banter but normally she said if these instances are tolerated within a business space it's only because that they're being said by or the harassment's being caused by what she calls high learners or rainmakers, and sometimes it seems just because they're bullies. So it's often people with quite a lot of power who can make, who have significant power in an organisation and perhaps make things quite difficult for people if they do come out and speak up. So that's looking at it within a business context. Of course, it's nothing new.
1: Yeah, they, those figures are actually quite terrifying. And it's interesting that the law has changed. I mean, are there any specific things you think a business needs to now do as a result of that legal change?
2: I think one of the things that they can do kind of, first of all is review HR policies because a lot of the time when something has happened to a female employee, they either don't know who to turn to. They don't know who the best person to speak to is, or they feel as though they're going to be judged or not believed if they do speak out. So quite, I I suppose, quite a, a fairly simple thing. I imagine that they can do right off the bat is go over their HR policies and ensuring that all of their reporting procedures and sanctions are really clearly communicated and everyone can access them so they know exactly what they need to do and what steps they need to take if they found themselves in that situation. We've got a quote here from Dr. Sarah Cumbers who says, When a situation is reported, it is vital that a thorough and unbiased investigation takes place with no negative consequences for the victim for choosing to speak up. Alongside this, appropriate and visible sanctions for the perpetrator where wrongdoing has taken place must occur. So these sanctions need to be visible. It needs to be made clear that the person that has harassed somebody else is being punished for its steps are being taken to resolve the matter. But then there's also this importance of diversity, particularly among the senior leadership team and the C-suite. When you have true diversity and you do have a mix of men and women they often bring that diversity of thought and when you have a panel of men even men that may have good intentions when you bring in a female perspective especially at senior level oftentimes we hear from women that are in those senior leadership positions and they themselves have gone through perhaps had an incident of sexual harassment where they have felt intimidated or disrespected or they probably know someone that has gone through that so they can then bring that perspective to those internal meetings, those board meetings, and help change other people's perspective on that situation and and reiterate the importance of dealing with it. But emphasis really does need to be placed on the importance of speaking out. Professor Dilshad Sheikh, who's the Dean of the Faculty of Business and Deputy Pro Vice-Chancellor Academic at Arden University, says that often sexual harassment claims cause a chain reaction and they open the doors for other victims to speak out. So she says, while sexual harassment in the workplace isn't necessarily a new thing, the ability to speak out and encourage workplaces to change, that's what's occurring more and more openly. So it is becoming a chain reaction. We see it all the time. And often it just takes the courage of one person to inspire courage in a lot of other women
1: well thanks for that i think that's some really good advice there for businesses now it's time to move on to our interview with doreen shanners
2: so you've worked with some major players in the finance world but i want to talk about your time on wall street Mm -hmm. and being the first bangladeshi woman to work on Wall Street. What was that
0: experience like? So this was back in 1989. The world was very, very different. So just to put it in context, what it was for me, and I will start off first as just as a woman, I think there are very few women on Wall Street at that point. And I went to Smith College, which is kind of a bastion of feminism in the US. It's a women's college, you know, one of the first and uh, one of the top women's schools. And Smith had a very strong tradition of basically having women go from Smith to Wall Street. And as a matter of fact, I was told this program where they take students after undergraduate degree, this was started by six Smith women whose fathers were all bankers. You know, and Smith is known as a lot of rebels and a lot of people who are breaking path. I think the key here was the fact that I was a woman of color. And I think that was something that was very, very unusual as well. The interesting thing is coming from a country or society or culture where in some ways, I think any kind of discrimination against women or any kind of inequality that you can feel or sense, it's very evident. When I went into Wall Street, I would say it was almost sort of this God. It was like this very unspoken way that you would feel, you would sense that you're different and how you'd be excluded. I would be given sort of the most awful projects to work on and I would work day and night and it'd be so intense and then I wouldn't be taken to the meetings whereas say my colleague who was sitting in the same bullpen area as me he would work on some project which is more you know high profile and he would be going to the meetings and so I think for me it really was I was representing you know sort of my gender and I was representing you know people of color and you know really trying to sort of you know, trying to get my toe in, you know, and work mm-hmm. as hard as I can. But still, it felt like, you know, there was this glass ceiling and glass wall, to be very honest, that I just could not break. Mm-hmm. So again, some things have changed, some things remain the same. But the reality is, I think people are slowly waking up to the fact that, you know, it only works to the company's advantage if you are more inclusive and embrace everyone to be a part of your workforce and part of your thinking.
2: I imagine you face perhaps some quite unique challenges while you were working on Wall Street what were some of those challenges and how did you manage to kind of overcome them
0: it is easier for you if you come from certain background you do get exposed to better deals you get we had a rockefeller in our class i remember and he got pulled into a lot of the high profile deals but i think they were more i would say cultural And I think the whole setup of it, again, it's the Wall Street of the 80s. It was very different. It was very macho. And there was no kind of room for you to actually figure all these out because the focus was on really getting the work done. And I still remember they told us there'll be many moments you want to cry. No one wants to hear you're crying. So go to the bathroom and flush the toilet and cry. So, again, it was very macho. You know, it was very like you have to be tough. You have to be kind of one of the guys, you know, type of thing. So... I'm glad that things have changed, things have become kinder.
2: You mentioned Rockefeller there, and after the financial crash of 2008, you were invited by the Rockefeller Foundation, and you were brought in in a, a sort of advisory role. Could you tell me a little bit about that role and the specific ways that you worked with them?
0: I was in Singapore at this point, and I was actually teaching at the National University of Singapore and really going deep in terms of how to measure impact. So I think... For me that was that was sort of the holy grail. If you can measure impact and quantify it and link it to the financial models, it really will then enable for capital to open up for many more people and be in a system can really be giving value to the impact, you know, giving value to the undeserved, giving value to the ones we are excluding and making them a part of the equation. So for me, that was a very, very important period in my life when I was in academia and being able to sort of go deep into that. And it was my writing that got picked up by the Rockefeller Foundation. And 2008 is very significant, the year, because you're right, the financial crisis happened then. And for those of you who remember 2008, there was a lot of talk about finances looked at in a very myopic way. And that's why this sort of crisis happened and just sort of looking at just profit maximization, not really looking at it in a holistic way of bringing in all the different stakeholders and valuing their contribution, you know, to the world, to the planet. That includes the climate, that includes women, that includes gender minority people, so it, and the underserved community. So it really became an important, almost battle cry from everyone that this cannot happen again. And as a result of that, the Rockefeller Foundation at this point was being headed by Judith Roden, who was a very, you know, extremely smart woman who... Uh, initiated this whole thing for Rockefeller that how do we make finance do good? So, and Rockefeller Foundation has a set up in Bellagio in Italy, which is fantastic, which is uh, these old villas and you go there, if you're invited, you know, you have to show up because this is one of, this may change your life and which it did for me. They they invite basically 20 people to spend four days there where you, you know, kind of hash out some world problem, right? And it sounds very esoteric and it kind of is, and I think in the process, they want to see what was going to come out of it. And in this case, again, it was the birth of impact investing, but it also was a time when I guess they were seeing the ideas I had on in terms of changing a financial system to make it work for everyone. And end of the four days, they approached me and said, you should go back and start something again, because at that point I had started a company and sold it and I came back and I got my students, even pulled my husband, you know, at that time who just left his work, so to be part of this. And we all together wrote the business plan of creating a social stock exchange and really a highway to that exchange, you know, meaning how do we get all these small SMEs, you know, who are either created by basically, you know, women and underserved communities or working with underserved communities working with the planet, and how do we actually get them on the highway of growth and have capital be accessible to them in different stages? And I remember, I had no idea. I mean, we wrote this business plan. The reality is, of course, we were like 10,000 feet. So, And when I submitted it, we asked for $495,000. And I remember Anthony buglevin who was the managing director, he writes back to me and says, are you sure this is the money you need? And I said, yeah, yeah I know it's a lot of money. But I think, and no, this is, this is it. You know, I'm sorry. You know, I can't do it for cheaper. So he asked me a couple of times and I kept on saying no. And they did give us the money. And and then he wrote to me and said, you know, you're being such a woman about it. We would have given you 10 times that amount. And that's why I kept on asking you. And, you know, that stayed with me. I was like, wow, I was being a very woman about it. And I realized that, you know, this is what we do as women. You know, we do undersell ourselves. You know, we do actually kind of, think that we are not good enough. Sometimes it is one of those things where I guess we have to start with ourselves and say, you know what, damn it, this is a great idea. Yes, you should be giving me $5 million, you know, to start off. And it sounds like if I did, they would have given it to me. So it was a a big lesson for me, you know, that (laughs) maybe we're too humble sometimes, you know, and sometimes I do think that, again, you know, being a woman and being kind of, especially from the part of the world I'm from, you know, do we actually think we're not good enough? So I think it's it's kind of interesting how it kind of st- stays with you. But the good news is all of this is we did very well. We took that money and, and my God, you know, did miracles with it. And today, I mean, just to give your audience about what we do, so we created IIX, which is Impact Investment Exchange, basically, which, you know, which is a really fantastic tagline connecting Wall Street to Backstreet of the underserved communities. And we are doing that very, very effectively. We have put out close to $300 million in the market in you know, impacting uh, over 159 million lives directly and indirectly in 53 countries. So we are very proud. So we have made finance work for everyone. Mm. So
2: you launched Impact Investment Exchange. So that was 10 years after you sold your first company.
0: Yep. So, I started my first company, One Nest, which was a global marketplace for handmade goods. You know, it's the predecessor of Etsy. And there's a lot of story there as well how hard it was for me to raise capital. But, and you see Etsy, which is a predecessor, of course, you know, started by a white man, they had no problem. So, I think the thing is for me, One Nest was a big, big, big lesson in terms of not just being an entrepreneur, but also understanding how I'll be viewed as an entrepreneur, a woman of color. And then also was very interesting for me to kind of see how what I was trying to do, which is again, create opportunity for other women around the world to be able to sort of sell their own handmade goods on a on a platform, was seen as something almost sort of laughable. And, you know, it was that difficult. And yet, if you think about it, eBay, what is does itself? sell? It sells junk, right? And that mm-hmm. was not laughable at all, right? Because it was a man who pitched it. I'd learned a lot of lessons with that. It sometimes when it rains, it pours. I mean, going through all the ups and downs. One of the most intense thing was going through nine eleven because I was in one of the neighboring buildings and we got trapped. So and I was six months pregnant. It's very hard for me to even talk about it even now. It was so 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 intense. But I think the thing was for the company we I had to kind of close it down. This was the days before Zoom and all of that. So there was computer and the internet, but even internet was not that great. So and after 9-11, you know, New York shut down for a while. And that whole area was the police, you know, kind of took it over and they were all the cleanup. I had to literally shut the company down for a couple of months, you know, and kind of restart it again. And it was a nightmare, right? It was truly a nightmare, having also been pregnant at that time. You know, at this point, I was eight months pregnant and it was a nightmare. And I think what's interesting, fast forward a decade later, I started the, you know, IAX and grew it very, very differently without kind of the Rockefeller was the only capital we got. And then we just grew it very, very gradually. And I had, I just took one other investment was from four different investors of 600,000. So in total, I X to this date, that figure stays the same, which we had capital infusion of just a million dollars over 14 years, and yet see what we have done in the market. So and I purposely didn't go out there in the market again, because I knew no one would believe my thoughts and ideas from what I experienced the first time. And what was very interesting was, you know, we really, I grew the company with a very concerted effort to really go to the last mile, make sure that what we're doing, you know, all the financial structures, the fintech platforms that we had, the impact measurements that we do, all of that very much brings in the last mile, brings in the climate. And I very purposely started having also staff in all the different countries because you can't be doing this remotely you really need to be in the countries Mm -hmm.
2: could you give us a couple of examples of some of these women that have been sort of positively impacted by this exchange
0: some of the stories you know that jumps out and i'll tell you it's a it's quite remarkable from this um, entity that i actually also worked with when i was running my first company one nest then they actually came into you know we pulled them into our bond and they work with women they give them small loans For them to actually start up small businesses this is in uh, one of the remote islands negros in the philippines what has been really sort of so heartwarming for me to see these are the women that you know with my first company i was able to sell their products and uh, this is actually during the famine time this this island itself has sugar plantations and when the sugar price dropped there was literally famine across the island and we really helped you know from one nest to lift a lot of these women and now fast forward 10 plus years later these same women where we were now able to take them to the next stage of not just having the ability to have a tiny tiny micro sort of business but really go to the next stage and now grow that be able to you know send now if they're sending their daughter to school they could now send them to college and being able to actually help the other family members also start up their business and also being very effective in terms of taking action, you know, in terms of planting trees and, and the climate action, you know, in terms of the clean cook stove, which again is a big thing for us. So we basically have been able to create a lot of linkages, you know, for these women. And these are, as I like to say, you know, sort of the the Marias and the Fatimas of the world. And what we do is we actually measure the impact on each one of them and also on their family and also their community. And then we're able to aggregate that to show the impact of of the financial product. How do you
2: see impact investing and financial markets evolving in the future?
0: We were one of the first and what we had to do was we really had to spend a lot of effort in terms of mobilizing the market. So as I like to say, you know, we had to create an ecosystem right? And I think, if you think about it, usually for any sort of industry, the ecosystem is actually created by the government. And even sort of this sort of impact investing space say in the UK, you have the government playing a big role around it. But in Asia, that didn't happen. So what that meant was we actually had to create an ecosystem and be able to operate then in that ecosystem, you know, bring folks into the fold of understanding what we're trying to do, and then, of course, act on it. This means, you know, having the lawyers and the accountants and the Investors, etc. Now, what has happened now with impact investing space? If you look at it, there's now they're saying the number is something like 1.7 trillion dollars that has gone in globally, and Asia is probably a small part of that. But the reality is there are many countries in Asia who are actually, you know, involved with this. I would say you know in Asia probably give or take about half a billion dollars has gone in. I know we ourselves have put in, but the reality also is the fact that in Asia you know, with the different markets, there are different stages. So say, for example, in India, it's a massive country, and you see a lot more enterprises that are ready to go to that next stage and be able to to absorb capital versus, let's say, something like, say, Vietnam, where once again, the government is very strong with a lot of their taking care of a lot of the social need but the enterprise development is more at the rudimentary stage. So I would say, you know, there's a spectrum, but I think the nice thing is from IAX, we've been able to work across the spectrum and there are also new players who are coming in, you know, new funds. And then also you, we see the governments are now sort of waking up to it and having legislation around it. And then you, you also see a lot of the donor agencies who are coming in doing this work as well. So So I think it is happening and it's quite... Encouraging to see that this space is here to stay, and I think and it is something that people are sort of leaning on in terms of the solutions to bring in you know sustainable development and then also being able to address a lot of the issues around gender equality and, and climate action, so it's nice to be able to use finance that way mm.
2: I wanted to talk a little bit about this idea of green funding or green finance. Mm-hmm. And there's no kind of real clear definition of what green funding or green finance is. And it can often be labeled as greenwashing or performative. Mm -hmm. So, from your perspective, how can a business make sure that its actions have a positive benefit for the environment or ESG as a
0: whole? Mm -hmm. Right. So, I think the thing is, you know, the greenwashing, honestly, the reason I think it is happening is because there's no verification or very little of it. So I think, you know, absolutely you can measure your impact and just on the social side as well. And, you know, we do measure on the green and the social side, but we put an incredible amount of emphasis on the verification. So it means that really being able to go deep in terms of the land or the natural resources that are being impacted, just being able to go and check if this is the case, is it a positive or negative impact and being able to actually not just rely on what the company is saying. So yes, there are, of course, you know, indicators, there are, of course, frameworks to to measure both on the climate side and the social side, and we do it. But I think where the difficulty comes in for a lot of companies is when they're not actually verifying what they're doing. And that's, you know, and that's unfortunate, because the reality is, you know, there's so much good can come out of it. And now, of course, on the Flip side, you know, the governments are starting to find these companies, which I'm glad they are, because that probably will allow, you know, make them become a little bit more cognizant of what they're doing. Meaning that there is a social cost. There is an environmental cost to everything that you're doing, right? So, and someone has to pay for it. So meaning like, you know, if you're actually going and you say, this is going to create jobs, create this factory, well, good for you. But then you also need to kind of see, be able to measure the environmental impact of that factory. And then also in terms of the social impact of the work on your workers and the community and so on and so forth. And I think if that is something that, you know, we are just, it's kind of as a window dressing, you know, that can happen because you don't want to take on the costs that are kind of related to that. And I think in that case, we all have to take our responsibility. The companies will say, you know, we, yes, there's a cost, but we're not willing to acknowledge that cost or pay for that cost because we can't sell a cheaper product. So I do think that all of us, you know, as consumers, as business owners, you know, as people who are impacted by all the things that's happening in the climate, we all need to take our responsibility. And it's not just the companies doing greenwashing. We also have to be able to call them out if they are doing greenwashing. We actually, you know, with our investments, with our words, with our advocacy, but then we also have to kind of show them what they need to be doing, and also acknowledging, you know, what I'm willing to pay a higher price for your products because, and you should be able to take a lower profit to basically cover the cost of cleaning up the river that you polluted, right? With your with your chemical dyes, or take care of the community where you you fished everything out, and there's nothing for the community to eat.
2: Hmm. I also wanted to talk about this idea that the whole point of business is to make money. But as you were saying, we're moving towards this ESG focus, and a lot of businesses do have an increased ESG focus. So just how important is ESG for business? And are we perhaps moving away from this idea that the sole purpose of business is purely to make a profit?
0: You know, I do think the movement has started a while ago that, you know, the sole purpose and that was sort of the whole post-2008, when a group of us sat together and kind of came up with this whole notion of finance doing good and impact investing, that was the the whole theory behind it, that Milton Friedman, the conservative economics guru, you know, he said, your only goal as a business is to make money for your shareholders. The reality is, again, that's a very myopic way of looking at it. You know, your shareholders are not only people who own your company, but it actually is, I would say, it's the stakeholders, right? So it's your employees, it's your People who own the company, if they're shareholders, it's actually the community. You know, it's the environment. So all of these groups are your stakeholders. So if you're going to be an effective business, you need to make sure all the stakeholders are accounted for, and you're actually measuring and being able to be accountable to all these different stakeholders. One of the things on ESG, I think, again, just for your listeners, it's you know, environmental, social, and governance, has been that it has been a bit of a check mark, right? So oh, I have one woman in the board, so. That covers my gender agenda, right? So I think also what ESG has done is really focused on basically risk mitigation rather than sort of saying, how do the different stakeholders, be it the people, be it the planet, how do they actually add value to your business? So I think what we have done very effectively is look at the other side as well. It's just not risk mitigation, but also it's actually value creation. And I think that's important for us, all of us to understand that. And I think that if we could change that narrative and have people, more people accepting the narrative of value creation for and by the different stakeholders, I think we won't be having all these discussions today. But I think all of us need to be saying that. We want to see a company be valued, not just by the financials of money, but really, sort of being able to see the value that they're creating uh, on the environmental side, on the social side, basically diversity and equity and inclusion.
2: Hmm. We ran a poll on our website last week because in the UK, we've had three bosses of UK water companies who have basically said that they're going to waive or forego their annual bonus. Okay. Because there's been huge public outcry over sewage spills. Hmm. That have polluted Britain's waterways, and they've sort of come out and taken accountability for those instances. And so we ran a poll on our website asking our readers, in what circumstances should a CEO waive their bonus? And 35% of our readers said that the main reason why a CEO should forego their bonus is because of poor financial performance. Mm. That was the overwhelming majority. Other responses that we included were about perception of fairness, public scrutiny, and failure to meet ESG targets. But we thought it was interesting that what seemed to be the most popular answer was this idea of public performance rather than perhaps any issues related to ESG. What do you make of that?
0: A big part of that, honestly, is the education. We have to take the responsibility to educate the public about the importance of looking at this in a holistic way where if you're just focusing on the financials and you think if the ceo doesn't meet the financials that's the only reason they shouldn't get a bonus i think we are literally stuck back in the 1980s you know that was sort of the thinking and and for years and that's what we're why we are here today In you know uh, in this climate crisis social crisis and i think the thing is we can't be saying that, oh, we want a fair society, but then, no, actually, you know what? But I wanna make sure that I'm gonna get that cheap T-shirt from H&M. So I think the thing is, we need to be able to you know, think and be educated to think in a more fair way to actually understand, once again, what value means. Value is not just financial value. And I think that's, again, that's a fundamental, I would say, crisis in the society if we actually see financial as the only value that is in the, in the planet, money is not the only value. It's not just something that happened also overnight in you know, the climate crisis, the economic inequalities, the economic crisis, the social crises. You know, we're talking about the systemic sort of abuse that has happened, you know, over centuries. So if you think about it, a lot of these issues that we're dealing with in the global south was something that, again, started by the global north. You know, the biggest polluters are all the industrialized countries, right? And who is suffering? It's the woman in Bangladesh where her land is underwater. Maybe it's time for us to question the system that came from the global north, that created a lot of wealth for the global north, and sort of say, how do we actually now make it work for everyone in this world, right? And not have this 1% be basically monopolizing literally, you know, 99% of the wealth. You know, how do we actually, you know, address, again, say, a gender financing gap of $1.7 trillion? Um, you know, how do we kind of make sure that it doesn't take us 268 years, you know, before we close the gap in economic participation for women? So I think the reality is we can only do all that if you look at a system that's actually producing that wealth. We look at it a little bit more holistically and make inclusion a big part of that. Mm. So let's talk about
2: your book, The Defiant Optimist. What's the inspiration behind the book?
0: You know, the inspiration really was, you know, I realized that I spent a lifetime and truly a lifetime in trying to make a system work for everyone. It was probably one of the most cathartic experiences. I needed to step back and figure out why did I do that? But for me, it really was the fact that I had to kind of say, why was I so adamant about it, you know? And I realized, and it was almost sort of a, you know, check on my own life and then sort of say, okay, is there something that I can share with others? Will it actually help others understand where they are with their own lives? And we all question our lives, right? We all question if you're doing the right thing, if you're happy, if we could be doing something else. And I think for me, it was a wonderful journey to write this book and really realize in the process, my God, I was so defiant about it. And so many hurdles but how that made me sort of move forward I think for me it really was and always will be the fact that I cannot make my journey in my life alone you know I need to bring others with me and what a joy it is you know to be able to do what I do and make this impact in lives of millions
2: what do you hope that leaders will take away from the book
0: it pays to be inclusive you know, it pays to actually think of others, it pays to think of all the different stakeholders in your business. And I do think it's very important for us to understand that what lies beyond what you can see, right? And how do we make a system, whatever system you're working on, you know, more inclusive. You know, one of my friends who's a very successful entrepreneur in Singapore is actually originally from the UK. And he said to me that he said, you know, I was in this panel and I just looked when I got up there. It was about something about sustainability, whatever the panel was. And there was not a single woman in the panel. And I pointed it out to the organizers, like, hold on, there's no women in the panel. I mean, forget like women of color, like there was like no women. And then the organizers were like, oh, okay, oh, well. So he said that he was quite upset with that. And he said, you know, and again, I was so I wouldn't have thought of all this you know maybe I would have done the same but I you know it was so nice to kind of be able to point this out but I was really outraged and from now on I will actually ask before going on a panel if they're actually people of color and if they're actually women you know represented in that panel or else I want to do the panel and I said good for you I mean this is exactly what I want you know this is what I want people to take away and I hope these little bites of kind of understanding about yourself and of what you can do, just even with those little actions, is a big thing. If all the men actually said, you know what, I will not actually go to, you know, do something, a public event if there are not enough women representation, just think of the change that will create.
2: That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Doreen. It's been fantastic to sit and, and chat with you today and to, to hear your story. And uh, I'm definitely going to uh, check out the book.
0: Yes, thank well. you very much. Really, really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for listening to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. We're available on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts.